If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. Continue this morning our exposition through the book of Matthew. Uh, Last week, of course, we considered uh, the incarnation of Christ, and now we've moved fast-forwarded now to coming to the end of our Lord's earthly ministry, and He's now beginning to speak more frankly, speak more directly to His disciples about that which is on the horizon. Matthew 16, verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In those three verses, there's a number of expressions, there's a number of words we could have taken for our subject today, and maybe a subject isn't necessary, but I want to draw your attention to those words that our Lord speaks seemingly directly at Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Of course, as we have watched this journey through the book of Matthew, we have watched the Lord continuing to prepare and to assemble that which would be His church. We saw a couple of weeks ago that the Lord uh, declared that He would build His church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We examined those verses in great depth. And now the Lord begins to prepare His disciples for a time when, as a body of believers, they would find themselves in a place of having to act alone because He's going to be taken from them. Their first great trial that was going to be upon them would be his death. Now, to this point in time, Jesus has only spoken very darkly at these dark things. He's not really expressed them very clearly. He's not shed a great deal of light to to them as far as what he was going to experience. But it's not by coincidence that that phrase, from that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples. He's now beginning to show, to teach things more plainly. It wasn't that Jesus was teaching in a manner as to try to add confusion or that he was doing something that was trying to cause them great consternation, but rather he was giving them instruction as they could handle it and as the hour, the appointed hour of his going to the cross was coming. There is a time in each one of our life, there's a time in the Lord's life when it was now the time to start talking about the more painful things, to start talking about the things that are more difficult to hear. Uh, Of course, we all, uh, over our lifetime, we hear difficult things, we hear painful news, we hear things that uh, sometimes shake us to the very core, and we find ourselves not being able to cope or handle the news in which we've heard. I think it's important that we remember 
that this news and the things that he's getting ready to speak to them would not have been easy to hear. It would have been very difficult to be told what he's telling them. And so I would caution us in, in saying, you know, why was there such uh, an effort uh, made specifically here of Peter to not handle these words well? He mentions in these first verse, especially the first verse we read, a gathering together of people. Those people would gather not to worship him, but to try to destroy him. He mentions people such as chief priests and scribes and elders. These are not common friends. These are people who would eagerly unite together with the sole purpose of his destruction. Their anger, their fury, their wickedness would be multiplied. They would do cruel things. You'll notice it says that not only did he have to go to Jerusalem, but that he would suffer many things. Jesus is declaring to his disciples what is going to happen to him. The use of the word must is very important, and we'll talk about that here in just a few moments. But he's foretelling them that he will suffer, but you'll notice not only would he suffer, he would be killed, but look at this glorious truth that he speaks to them and be raised again the third day. Now that's the expression that he uses that when we see Peter speak up against the Lord, maybe he did not have a full understanding of what Jesus had just said because that is a glorious truth. It's a truth that you and I hold dear because we read about not only his death and his burial and his resurrection, but we know it as fact because it's already happened. We already look back and know that everything that Jesus said was going to happen, it did happen. But again, remember where the disciples are. They have spent an innumerable number of hours with him. They have been with him everywhere he's gone. And now he begins to speak hard things, hard sayings. He foretells about his resurrection day. He even specifies the exact day in which this resurrection will take place, the third day. Now again, we could look at this and say, this is a glorious truth. I would submit to you that when we look at Peter's interaction with our Lord, maybe he didn't recognize or hear those words. Because everything that Peter does is to try to hinder Jesus from allowing these things to happen. Most of these things that we see that Jesus speaks are based upon man's very different version of the Lord's kingdom. We've got to keep that in mind. Remember, there was this view that Jesus the Messiah would come and would establish his kingdom, and many expected that kingdom to be on earth at that very moment. The furthest thing from the disciples' mind was the death of the Messiah who had come to establish his kingdom. So again, we've got to be a little bit careful in being too harsh towards how the disciples receive the news in which they're hearing. It must have been a very sad revelation. Now again, we realize Peter's the one who speaks up, but the other disciples heard what Jesus was saying. Probably in their mind, the Scriptures does not say here in our text, but there's no doubt in their mind they had to have been going through scenarios and they had to be considering, does he really mean what he says? Does he really mean that he's going to die? And if he's going to die, then why would he go to a place that he's going to die? 
the conclusion humanity would come to would be, if you don't want to die, don't go to the place where death is certain. You would avoid it. That's, I believe, the human reasoning that's going on in their mind. But Jesus is speaking very plainly, and he's speaking very directly. He's telling them not only about the present, but he's telling them about that which is to come. He's even going to enter into the very details concerning his death and his resurrection. He clearly states, I'm going to be killed. And again, we'll talk about that and just the, uh, the emotions that that would have raised. Jesus knew, of course, that all of the work of redemption would involve him. Remember, he has redemption. He knows that before the very foundation of the world that he is, he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. In our human mind, we can understand that Jesus had counted the cost. He understood the price. The price was his blood. He clearly gets this. And again, yet to the human disciples, there had to have been a sense of sadness. Anytime someone tells us that they're going away, if they're dear to us, there's a sense of sadness. And there's a sadness. And I think it's imperative that we understand and don't, don't neglect the humanity of the disciples. Don't neglect Peter's humanity. Again, sometimes Peter is held to a higher standard than what you and I are held to. And we look at Peter's life and we say, how could Peter have acted so rashly? How could Peter have spoken? Because he's human. He was not a super saint. He was not deity. He was a man who had all the same common emotions and feelings that you and I would have expressed if someone had looked us in the face and said, I've got to go to this place and I'm going to be killed. We would all have the same emotion. What Jesus is ultimately doing here is he's foreshadowing the cross, which must include his death. And he does, there's no question, he does rebuke Peter for attempting to stop him from going to the cross. Now let's examine this in a little bit more detail, these verses. Again, we see verse 21 about this time forth. I think it's important for us to keep in mind after the introduction I just gave you, remember the confession that Peter had made earlier. Peter's confession, back in verse 16 of this chapter, when Jesus asked him directly, but whom say ye that I am? Remember what Peter's answer was. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is as a rock solid of a confession of what you believe about Jesus Christ as any. If you were to make that confession today, I would have no other choice but to truly believe you must be a child of God. That confession is rock solid. You are the Christ. Not some random Christ. The Christ. Not Antichrist. The Christ. The promised Christ who would come. Our Lord taught his hearers, his disciples, and others in what we refer to as degrees. In other words, he taught them as they were able to bear it. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul told Timothy about the milk and the meat of the word. We don't receive the meat, and we're not able to handle all the meat of God's word the moment that we first are saved. 
Sadly, we have sometimes done that to people, haven't we? Where we have, we've seen them converted and suddenly we think they're going to all of a sudden grasp every grand truth that we're so privileged to know. And then we wonder, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get this? It's a, it's a matter of times. It's degrees. You become more and more able to bear the truth. That's what's happening with his disciples. This time forth now, Jesus is moving up the steps. He's, great. He's taking them further and closer and closer to Calvary's hill. He's taking them as they're able to bear it. But notice what he says, what he shows them. How that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. The word must does not just mean only going to Jerusalem. The must is also connected with what must happen there. Jesus must suffer. Jesus must be killed. And I would tell you this just as gloriously, he must be raised the third day. All of these musts are things that have to happen. Now again, when we hear the really bad news first, sometimes we fail to hear the glorious end result. Yes, he must be killed. Yes, he must go to Jerusalem. Yes, he's going to suffer. But he also must be raised from the grave the third day, according to the promises of God's word. All of these things are being done according to the decree, the counsel of God. Based upon the covenant of grace that was made before the foundation of the world between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In correlation with all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that all of God's elect, all of God's people would in fact be saved as a result of these musts. These things were absolutely required and necessary. Tells us one thing. This was not something that Jesus could simply turn away from and say, I just won't go. It would have made God a liar. Because the prophets had said this, these events must unfold and they will unfold in exactly this manner. It was absolutely necessary. So he instructs them on the must. He instructs them in the truth of his, not only who he is, but he's trying to bring them by degrees to a place where they accept what he's telling them. That he was the Christ the Son of the living God, which Peter so clearly professed so that their faith, when all these events begin to unfold, would not be shaken by what takes place. He's basically giving them the roadmap of the journey he's getting ready to go on. He's telling us the way. He's showing us here's what's going to happen. He's showing us this is what you can expect. And be killed. This simply implies and tells us very directly that Christ would not die a natural death. It would be different if I read to you and the Bible actually said that he must go to Jerusalem and die. Because we could read into that, there's a number of different ways a person can die. They can die by natural causes. They can die by making a foolish decision to do not do something and then they do it and they die. The word killed is intentional here because the word killed suggests 
a cruel and violent manner. It's very difficult to use the word kill and say in a tender manner. It's almost impossible. Now, you might have a gentle demeanor about you, but it's violent. It's to take the life from. And we got to add this, without any regard to the law or what's right. Thou shalt not murder, one of the Ten Commandments. It's there because it's a violation of God's law. To kill, to take the life of another person, including the life of the unborn, is sin. It's always sin. The child in the womb is not painfully relieved. They are killed. They're taken in a cruel and violent manner. It's an abomination to God, no matter what way you slice it. Killing is violent. It's cruel. And it disregards the law. Now we know, because we look back, Jesus was subjected to shams of trials. One of his trials was at night, which was a complete violation of law in and of itself. There was no regard for him and for his rights. Now again, the disciples don't, they can't unpack all this the way you and I are unpacking it today. We have the benefit of looking back and we, we have the end of the story in front of us. As I say often, they couldn't go to the New Testament scriptures and see all this unfold. Now they could go back to the old, but they couldn't see all this New Testament unfold. So he begins to instruct them as to what those things would be so that when they see it come to pass, they're not going to be offended, but that there would be a, something to wait for. His resurrection. All this is going to happen. It must happen. But I want you to wait for the resurrection. Now again, think about what he just said. He just said something that is not common. To be raised from the dead. If someone says that to you, try to comprehend that for a minute. To be raised from the dead. But it's as if the disciples could not grasp that yet. Again, Jesus is teaching by degrees. Verse 22, then Peter took him. Now, there's been all sorts of speculation over the years as to what this taking looked like. I've heard enough, been around enough. I've heard people say that they believe that Peter grabbed him and took him violently aside. I've heard other people say, which I tend to take this position, that I don't think Peter did this in a violent, cruel manner. I think he took him in a very friend-like manner, almost as if I don't know how to comprehend what I'm hearing. And that he takes him to the side, as a friend would take another friend that just told them something very, very disturbing, something that was very bothersome. And he does take him aside, and it's, it's a private conversation to an extent. Now, it's this phrase, and began to rebuke him, is where we immediately say, he must have really been given him the what for. You realize all rebukes are not in a pounding your hand type of a manner. 
Uh, there are times when we as friends in the Lord, we have to pull brothers and sisters aside and we have to tenderly remind them of what's happening in their life or something's not proper or something's in, it's just not right. Rebuke doesn't mean you're shouting at them. It doesn't mean that you're being cruel and unkind to them. Again, I think Peter, again, continually gets a very, very unfair conclusion about who he was because we immediately think this guy was just, uh, just uh, had no control at all. Now, he does have a lack of some self-control, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but I don't think he's doing this out of a violent passion or does he mean any ill will? I don't think he's, he's trying to do this in a way to try to show the Lord up, if I can use that expression. There is some tenderness here. There is respect. What Peter, I believe, is seeing here is what he's heard. He's looking upon Christ as saying, this is not something you should have to endure. In other words, this, is, this type of situation is unworthy of you. You, our Lord, should not have to endure such cruel treatment. Peter rebuked or reproved him as people often do when they have listened to a situation and they make a judgment on it and say, this is what I think this means, and because this is what this means, here's my conclusion and what I think you should do. There's been times, probably in all of our lives, where somebody has come and reproved us and rebuked us for something that they thought they saw in us that was wrong, only to find out your observations weren't right. Well, that's what's happening with Peter. I believe he has a good intention. I don't believe Peter is trying to be what we'll see in a moment. He's not trying to be Satan. But yet Jesus is going to very specifically tell him what's wrong with what Peter is doing. Peter judges this situation as something that should not be. We might put it this way. Peter has turned to his own bias or his own prejudice of the situation to say, that's not what I think should happen. In other words, I want to write the story. And this phrase is such a powerful phrase. Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. The direct meaning of what he says, be it far from thee, is be propitious. In other words, be merciful. This is important. Be merciful to yourself. Be propitious. We might take it one step further and say, be merciful to yourself, Lord, and spare yourself. We take it one step further and say, better yet, let God be merciful unto you. Let the Father spare you of this. Peter does not have ill will in what he's saying. I believe Peter's intentions, humanly speaking, are right. These words, the last words of this verse actually expound what it means. This shall not be unto thee. God, Peter says, Lord, be merciful unto yourself. Help yourself. This should not happen to you. This is the equivalent of Paul saying, God forbid. 
It's the equivalent phraseology. God forbid is the strongest denial of something should not take place. That's what Peter is saying. You are unworthy of this kind of treatment. You're unworthy. Be propitious. Spare yourself. Let God the Father spare you. God forbid this happens. Some margins in some Bibles, mine doesn't say this, but there are some that actually read, Pity thyself, Lord. Which means Peter meant to say, God grant of His infinite mercy that this may not be true. How can it be that such a one as you should die? It's very instructive. Now remember, go back to what I began with. Remember the people's picture of the kingdom. No doubt in my mind, Peter at some point probably had to have thought, along with the disciples and everyone else who would hear him, that Christ's death would be the end of the kingdom. It's a really important piece that often gets overlooked. And that if the kingdom isn't established, then the people's hope is gone. Right? If there's no kingdom, there's no hope. There was a great misunderstanding of what Jesus Christ's kingdom being established would actually look like. I would tell you today, there's still confusion among well-intentioned believers about what the kingdom of Christ really looks like, what it's all about. But when there's a, when there's a potential of a loss of hope, our intentions will drive our conclusions. If this leads to no hope, the conclusion is I have to do something to change this. So I think it is in tender zeal that Peter came unto the Lord and said, be propitious. Spare yourself. Now, we can't, we can't ignore that Peter's conclusions are incorrect. Okay? Now, we can't be so soft here that we say to Peter, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt because the Lord does respond back very strongly. And you'll notice how he responds. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, before we get into why I do not believe the Scripture is saying that God, that Jesus is calling Peter Satan, let me just give you a couple things to consider about the words that Peter was speaking and what the meaning of those. Peter's words were spoken with good intention. I believe his words were spoken not only with a good intention, but with affection. Words that are spoken with good intentions and with affection are not always right, proper words. In other words, if I just say today that as long as I tell you something with good intention and with affection, then whatever I say should be received. No. I can have great affection for you, and I can have great intention towards you and be dreadfully wrong. That's what's happening with Peter. Peter has great intentions. He loves the Lord. But his words are speaking as a person who is still ignorant or is not yet grasping the redemption of mankind that requires the death of Christ 
he still is not fully grasping the doctrine of the cross. Remember, they do not have a comprehension of Jesus going to the cross. This is not something that even the the prophets didn't say, he's going to go to a cross. It wasn't them always looking forward to the cross. They They didn't have a concept of this. But the doctrine of the cross, what's the cross about? The redemption of mankind. So Peter's still ignorant of these things, and he's still ignorant of the will of the Father concerning Christ. Number two, Peter's words also spoke and displayed a great weakness in him. His words, although given with good good affection and good intention, contradict his previous confession in Matthew 16, 16. Because when he acknowledged and confessed him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Inherent in that is these great truths of the necessity to die on a cross, the doctrine of what happens, and the will of the Father concerning Christ. Good intentions, true affection, do not justify evil thoughts or actions. In other words, just because I have a good affection and intention doesn't mean it should be accepted. Jesus does not tell Peter... And again, I'm not trying to be irreverent. Peter, that's okay. I understand. Let's sit down and have coffee and discuss this. He rebukes him because he's wrong. We live in a society where people cannot take a reproof. They can't take a rebuke. We take it personally. We say, how dare you? So we soften it and we say, I understand. No, Jesus uses the strongest words he possibly can. Get thee behind me, Satan. I don't know if Jesus could say anything (laughs) worse than that at this moment. Christ's rebuking of Peter is certainly appropriate for what's taking place. Now again, we could get into the semantics, but he turned. We could do the same thing we did with Peter. Did Jesus turn in a violent manner? Did his eyebrows go up? Did he have a scowl on his face? It doesn't say that. It just says he turned and said unto Peter, okay, so he's looking right at him, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, there are some who take that position that He's saying, Peter, your words are so vicious and so wrong that you are the devil himself. But when you notice the entirety of what he's saying, he says, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God's, be of God, but those that be of men. Let me summarize it and we'll break it down. Jesus, in effect, is saying, Peter, you believe by this rebuking of me that you are showing kindness like a friend or that you are doing what's best for me by asking me and telling me to be merciful to myself. In other words, you're acting like my friend, which you are, 
But the words in which you're speaking are actually words of an enemy. They're words of an adversary. They're words that Satan himself would say, because the one thing that Satan would have more than anything else would be to keep me from going to the cross and keep me from accomplishing the redemption of mankind. It's pretty powerful stuff when you think about what Jesus is actually saying. These words that Peter is saying, Jesus is saying these are words the devil would speak because he would want me to not go. Ultimately, he is the great adversary. He is the great enemy. Now, no doubt he does say, thou art an offense to me. Get thee behind me, Satan. The words you speak are words like Satan, my adversary would say. I abhor this type of advice. I abhor this type of counsel. Jesus is thinking in his mind, no doubt, back to what he just said, I must suffer. I must die. This is according to the determinate counsel of God. It is my Father's will. It is an enemy of me. Don't miss this. It's an enemy of me that would try to keep me from obeying my Father's will and going to the cross. That's why it is so vitally important as churches continue to drop their doctrine and they're trying to move away from the importance of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, you cannot just simply give them a pass because they have good intentions or good affection. That's the words of the devil himself. Take the cross out. Take the blood out. You take that away. You're not speaking the words of God. You're speaking the words of Satan. That is what's at the heart of this interaction. It's as if Jesus is looking through Peter, through the back of his head, and saying, these are the words of Satan, and Satan, I know your ploy, I know your plan, get thee behind me. Just like when in the hours of his temptation, when the devil tried to take Jesus and tried to get Jesus to perform all of these things, tempting him. Jesus himself said, you will only live by the word of God. Jesus is basically shutting down the conversation at this point. He does not give Peter time for a rebuttal. This is not two men on a stage debating. You have your opinion, I have my opinion. Jesus shuts this down. And he says, your words are not words that a friend should say. Your words are the words of an enemy. Now, he explains it. He doesn't just say that and say, now, Peter, go away. Now, these words can be taken as very harsh words, but they are, it's written in a beautiful way. Now, your translation, whatever translation you have, may not use these exact words. I love this translation because I love the word that's used here. For thou savorest not the things of God. The word savorous can be understood as something that is very precious, something that is uh, 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 deeply uh, thoughtful. In other words, you're not thinking clearly. You're not properly understanding that these are the things that are of God. These are the things that are of the counsel of my Father. 
These are the truths that are essential to the redemption of mankind. No doubt Jesus considered Peter his friend, and no doubt he believed that Peter thought of Jesus as his master and friend. But he says, you're not savoring the counsel of God, but rather what you're savoring are those that be of men. In other words, you're understanding it from a human perspective. You're understanding, you're grasping it. You're not thinking of me, Peter, as the Savior of the world or the Redeemer of mankind. You're thinking of me only by the death that I must experience. You realize there would be no redemption of mankind if there was not a death of Christ. Jesus is telling Peter that you are lacking a bit in your self-control. Not his outward actions, but in his affections. Peter, you are, by your words, attempting to hinder. This may sound harsh. You are attempting to hinder the redemption of mankind by wanting me to be prevented from going to Jerusalem. To savor to cherish the things of God. In a sense, Jesus is telling Peter, and it goes along with why he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're being seduced by your own carnal nature and by your own depravity. It is not kindness. It is not friendship to try to persuade somebody in a make an application here for our personal advantage to do something to attempt to seduce them into doing something you want them to do. Jesus could not even consider what Peter was asking him to do. Jesus could not even mull over Peter's request and say, let me think about this for a moment, Peter. Let me take this under consideration I'll go to my father in prayer like I always do and I'll put the matter before my father and I'll see what he says. Now again, you realize I'm bringing very real human thought into this. Jesus didn't think and reconsider and say, I wonder if Peter has a point. That's why you use such harsh words with him. Again, notice the contrast between what Peter said in verse 16 what Jesus told him in verse 18 about building his church and what he tells him in verse 23. In a matter of verses between verse 16 and verse 23, he goes from acknowledging Peter's words and his confession to looking him straight in the eye and saying, get thee behind me, Satan, after we had just celebrated his confession of Christ. That's quite a swing. To go, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona to now looking at him and saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Again, I don't take the position that the Lord is calling Peter Satan, but rather he is looking through him. And he says, these are the words that Satan would say to me. You realize that in the human perspective, and we fall prey to this, sometimes we think, this man or this person who is so revered and so loved, we think that he's actually speaking good words, but actually what he's speaking is he's speaking words that are contrary to the mind of God. 
It's happening in Christianity all across the world. Just because you're a beloved preacher doesn't mean you're speaking words of truth. Just because you're selling lots of books doesn't mean you're speaking words of the Savior. You might just be speaking words that are an attempt to hinder the God of this world. Sometimes we realize that even the Bible says that Satan himself can transform himself as an angel of light. Even people with good intentions, good affections, you and I, folks, we cannot excuse ourselves from this. We can, we can have great affection and great intentions and yet speak something wrongly. It's the old scenario, I have peace in my heart, so it must be right. You can't trust it. You can't trust your own heart that cannot deceive, that you cannot be deceived to say something that you think, well, this has got to be right. I believe Peter thought he was right to say what he said. But yet, Christ, as he sees Satan lurking behind Peter's words, the very idea of showing pity to himself or the fact or the thought of not obeying his heavenly Father in this, that was an offensive thought to him. In other words, Jesus says, there's no way that would enter into my mind to not do the Father's will. Folks, I think there's a great humbling truth here. We realize that we only can understand what the Father gives us to understand. We realize that it must be revealed unto us. And we know that there are things that we have not yet fully grasped or fully understand. I would caution us to be very careful about dogmatically saying you've grasped all the things of God and that you speak now as an authority in that subject. Be very careful about that. Because there are things that we think we're savoring, we think we're grasping, but we really don't understand. We're just relying on our, on our intentions and our affections. What well, must be right, because my affection for the Lord is there. My intention is to glorify God, but you might not be speaker, speaking proper words. Listen, there's no doubt about it. If we do not rejoice in the atonement of Jesus Christ, if we don't see the beauty in the cross, a bloody cross, only a true child of God can see the beauty in a cross that Jesus died upon. The human mind just sees cruelty. It sees, sees brutality. It doesn't see that in that beauty is the redemption of mankind. Without a cross that Jesus dies upon, we don't have a salvation to celebrate. No matter how much we think we honor Christ, we're an enemy of Christ if we try to deny in any way, shape, or form the atoning sacrifice of that cross or in some way as a church, try to water down what the gospel really is. To try to make it more palatable to man. To try to change it so that people aren't as offended. No, we are to proclaim the gospel as the Word does. There are some today who are repulsed at the idea of Jesus going to the cross. Yet they claim to be lovers of God. They claim to be sound theologians, but they're not. You understand today, you can be a great humanitarian and not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
You could be the most charitable person on this planet and not know Christ. The reality is, is we can call ourselves friends of God and friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we do anything to deny the reality of what Jesus Christ is saying must take place here, we speak the words of Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Again, Peter becomes our illustration. We find a lot about what Peter seemingly does wrong. But many, many years ago, I began as I looked at the life of Peter, I continued to see over and over and over again what we see in Peter is every single one of us. Every one of us is Peter. Not physically, not spiritually, but as an illustration, we are all prone to this. And yet our Lord shows us these are the things that you should savor. These are the things that should be glorious to you. And I certainly pray that we have understanding this morning about what our Lord is speaking here. Let's pray together.